clubhouse. This is Paul. This is Caroline. And today we're going to discuss the seventh episode of the third season of Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale. This one is called Under His Eye. I think it's a reference to the way that this, all the events in this episode that kind of remind us that for whatever gains we might have thought that June might have had in her little adventure, she's still in Gilead and things are still happening the same way that they did in the first season. I agree. It definitely had that feel of like back to back to basics, back to the old school stuff that we'd been dealing with, um, you know, for a long time. A lot of the same relationships came bubbling back up and a lot of the same obstacles came right back. Let's go to our story with Emily. She was one that we had been, you know, sort of just touching base with now and then as she's been back in Canada with her wife and her son, Oliver. They've been still trying to find their way. Were you surprised to see that the Swiss would go and interview Emily as a part of this larger questioning to try to figure out whether or not to return Nicole? Let's see. She was involved in bringing the baby across the border. On that score... No, but on the questions that they asked her, yes. I was scared with the questions that they asked her because in many ways, it feels like she's in danger of being extradited herself for crimes against Gilead. It seems like if they wanted to pursue prosecuting her for things, especially when they said, did you do things that they would consider illegal? Uh, I mean, what is going on, Paul? Do you think that we should have actual concern for Moira and Emily and all of the others that have gotten out so far? No extradition treaty, but they. But I guess that comes up later. I wonder how retroactive such things are. Mm, it, that's a good question. You know what I mean? Yes. The term grandfathered in applies here. We did look up what the extradition laws having to do with kidnapping. And one of the things that struck me that was just really interesting in the way that it's worded. Again, if you guys don't remember, Atwood's whole premise was that all of her little parts that seem so scary to us are actually being done in the world today or have been done before. So things like, you know, genital mutilation or, you know, women's submission, all, all kinds of stuff like this. These are all things that are done all around the world. And so I wanted to see if there was something in the laws about a child across borders, if there was any kind of treaty out there. And the thing that struck me in the wording was that the child is to go back to the, to the circumstances that they were in immediately prior to being kidnapped. It does not say that they go back to to their biological parents. It says they go back to the situation they were in immediately preceding them yeah. being taken across the border, the, which would have it, which would have Nicole with the Waterfords, not that the rightful return is to Nick and June. The funny terminology there was something about returning to the status quo. It was, uh-huh. it was uh, yeah. And, and what it said immediately proceeding also like struck me. Of course, that is today's laws, but that does give you a frame of reference for the kinds of agreements that countries have amongst each other where there's no such a real way to enforce that exactly, but it's still sort of how we do things. Well, that agreements have been made. And and typically when it comes to treaties and things like that, you know, there are other things riding on it. So if you don't do that, then something else is affected, trade or, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. So there, there, there's sort of like checks and balances for those agreements. I was really nervous that this entire questioning just brought up this idea that the refugees may in fact not be safe. Did you feel like Emily's wife was handling it, I don't appropriately, I guess is the right word, in telling Emily that the things that happen in Gilead basically stay in Gilead and that she's not offended or upset or in in any way bothered by the events that happened. Absolutely. At least in this week's portrayal of the wife relationship, it is Emily is kind of freezing her out, which it's the kind of like a judgment free statement in, in that I'm not saying that what she's doing is right or wrong or bad or right, good or whatever. I'm just saying she is not taking advantage of the person that came to the interview with her for support and and she's just walking away from her. Do you think that that's okay though? I mean, when I think about being in Emily's shoes, I think about how, first of all, embarrassing just and humiliating it would be to 
have to say and admit that you stabbed someone in the back, that you ran over someone, you know, that that it's just, it's so difficult. But then also your mind and your, your psyche must go back to those incidences and replay them in your mind when you're questioned about them. My, so I don't even think Emily's like really there, you know? Shouldn't a lawyer be in that room with you arguing about the germaneness of, of the questioning? I understand it's a, it's a neutral party and all that, but shit. I mean, incriminating yourself to this party who's going to go and talk to the people that you, I don't that know what the right word. Crimes against. Yeah, committed crimes against. Like, uh, I mean. I don't know how the Canadian laws work. I certainly don't know how Swiss laws work. We know in America, you are supposed to be represented by counsel who would hopefully, you know, put their hand over yours and be like, uh. Let's not answer that one. It's not like they could offer you any kind of like meaningful immunity exactly because what is at stake here is they're going to potentially have the power to send a person back to to Gilead. Well, I don't think it's a person, hun. I think it's the power to create like a conduit in which, yeah, in which all these people could have to be sent back. Anyone who committed any crime should have to stand trial in the country they committed the crime. And that's where we get into the opening conversation of Moira and, and Emily. I mean, if that were to happen, there's got to be so many American refugees in Canada. This is where the world building, they need to show us more than they have in order for it to continue to make sense. Because, I don't know, your rank and file American that, that did make it out mm-hmm. isn't going to be like, well, okay, Canada, I'm glad you're I'm glad you're observing the letter of the law and going to send us back to Gilead, which we didn't agree with the formation of in the first place. It's not like we broke laws there that we helped make. It's, the laws changed overnight and then we got away. Well, we were slaves, yeah, or, or we were kidnapped ourselves, and taken there. Yeah, the the disposition of Americans in Gilead and Canada's attitude toward them, I need some exposure to that to feel a little more comfortable. We got a little bit of the stupid minister guy, and that was not really enough to go on. All he gave were very pat, you know, bureaucratic sounding answers. You're talking about going back to the previous episode. No, I'm talking the- about this episode with the oh oh protest. The protest. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't, I, I, I didn't even consider that an exchange, really. Okay, so I, I want to make it clear what I think you're saying. It's not as if they were born citizens of Gilead who then committed crimes against fellow citizens and now ran away, and now the original government wants them back to try them for their crimes. These were citizens of another country, America, who were stolen or in some way enslaved into this other country, and they committed crimes on their way out, basically, in an attempt to escape. Now they're in Canada. Am I saying that correctly? Like, they are not original citizens of Gilead, so they shouldn't be tried or returned as if they were. Yeah, I, I, that's that's my argument is that committing crimes in order to get yourself out of trouble is usually kind of winked at by most law enforcing bodies. You know what I mean? You got to right. If, if you, you got to kill, kill your, your kidnapper, kidnapper, right? Right. If you, you kill your kidnapper on your no way, no one out, gives a shit. Right. You're okay. You're not right. You're not going to be hopefully ever going to be tried for murder. So I think, so that makes sense because in this case, for all the cases of all of these people, they were the kidnapped party. Doesn't matter how how you really look at it. They were the kidnapped party on some level. So I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think the wife had good intentions. I think this goes back to that conversation we were having about PTSD and are they doing, you know, victims of PTSD justice with Emily? You know, the wife very much tried to express something that we we all think is a great sentiment. Is Was that the right time? Was that the the right way? Was that what a person struggling with PTSD needs to hear? I don't know. And I hope that I would like to hope that our, you know, writers have done their due diligence and have actually researched this and and decided whether or not the wife should be saying things that are appropriate or not, you know, having her misstep on purpose or not. But it definitely seemed ineffective no matter what, you know, it didn't get through to Emily. When we moved over the conversation with Moira, I'm going to take this a little, a little bit not chronologically. Moira's conversation with Emily after they got arrested in the protest, they're talking about all the, the crimes that they had committed. And there was that sort of that looming cloud of are we bad people now are we have we changed are we now murderers are we now people who have the ability to kill other people i really loved how they handled that and they had moira say 
well, how many people have you hurt or killed or done anything to since you've been out of Gilead? And Emily's like, you know, none, of course. And then Moyer's like, well, then I think you're good, <laughs> you know? So do you think that's supposed to be like a contrast to the conversation with the wife where the wife is doing the best she can, but she doesn't have any frame of reference. So she's just saying like, you know, whatever you had to do, it's okay. We don't have to make a big deal out of it. And Moira is saying, whatever you had to do, I had to do the same thing. How I get through it is by these little chats, talking with other people like you about what we had to do to get out. It's kind of like a difference there. You know what I mean? In terms of like ability to understand and be on the same level. Certainly, certainly the comforting aspect of it. I agree that it's like it, it would get through to Emily in a completely different way. You know, just saying what you did doesn't matter versus what you do did matters, but you had to do it in order to survive and yeah. in order to be here today. That's what I'm getting at. Is, is kind of different because I agree with you. There's something about what the wife was saying that and I am not down on this wife. So I just want to be like clear on that. But there was just something about it that was like a little bit dismissive in terms of like what's done is done. And the way that Moira was able to sort of shine light on it, it was a little more like it was the circumstances we were in and you were trying to get home to your family. And so it it did happen and it was warranted and you're not a bad person for it. And the wife was sort of more like it happened, ignore it, <laughs> like move on, you know? And it was like a little bit, a little bit different. I can see it's very, it's like subtle, but I could see where one's more comforting than the other. And certainly how's the wife going to understand? She can't, she got out. I mean, the worst she got was kind of those tense situations at the airport when they were trying to get out. That exactly. Was, yeah. So let's, let's finish up Emily, because we didn't really have that much more with her, except for we had this conversation in the coffee shop that you could take to be just very like, mm, I was just chit chat, idle chit chat. But I think that we're bringing in this homosexuality topic more and more in the show. And I'm, I'm wondering again with George, if they're sort of just sort of like lacing in more conversation about like the way that the, this was a quote, like gays in common. Like, I wonder if they're if they're just subtly layering it by having Emily and Moira talk about, like, certainly we've crossed paths. Like, certainly there's people we have in common who we've both slept with or we both have dated or we both have known within the gay community. And I'm I'm wondering if the if you took that con- that conversation and you said, well, it seemed kind of like out of context. Why wouldn't they be talking about something else? I don't know what. But why would they bother if they only get one conversation in the coffee shop? Why would they bother having them have this conversation of where do we cross section in the gay community? My guess is is that they're foreshadowing a romantic attempt between these two. Oh, really? That's my guess. Okay, talk to me. I don't know that it would work. It's just more like I could see it coming as like, a, like I said, an, an attempt. It's funny because until they were having that conversation, I had forgotten that they were both gay, as funny as that is. Like I was like, oh, I guess they could be attracted to one another and be interested in dating with one another. I wasn't I wasn't thinking about that, that possible connection with them at all. So interesting that you say that, that like maybe it will end up that it's more comfortable for Emily to be with Moira anyway, because she already knows her. If George is gay, isn't that potentially like a little a little high on the representation meter? There's only like 10 characters in this show, and that would be three gay characters, potentially. I'm just saying, the numbers aren't aren't there for, for that to be represented in such a high percentage, given how that population is treated in this future. It is, I suppose. But my main thing is that I feel like this entire episode was foundational and laying the groundwork for like what's going to happen next. You know, we have episodes where things happen and we have episodes where we're sort of like setting people up to that next thing. And I'm just wondering, you know, we last week we talked a lot about George being in Fred's space and a lot about how this sort of like, was this a sexual tension or was this just like male domination? And then we have, you know, the, the women talking about maybe you're right. Maybe this is just going to be um, moving towards a situation where two survivors of a similar incident have a better chance of making a connection and having a successful life together than a survivor with a person who who wasn't a part of it. Maybe that's it. It has nothing to do with gay or not gay. just has to do with that Moira and Emily experienced the same thing. If you were in a fire together or or a terrible thing, you could understand each other on uh, about that. And somehow then you could make a love connection. 
maybe that's simply what it is and has nothing to do with the fact that they were talking about what our gay, you know, cross sections are in dating. You're right. Maybe they were just simply sort of doing what you might do. Interested in another party, you might talk about their dating past. You might talk about, who do you know? Where did you, you know, where have you been? Who have you dated? You know, you might talk about that. If it was a guy and a girl, you would definitely think that immediately. You think, oh, they're kind of doing that kind of interviewing dance of like, do we have friends in common? Do we have people we've dated in common? You know, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So that's the kind of talk that made me think definitely that they're going to attempt some sort of love connection between the two. Speaking of attempting love connections, we have Serena and Fred. Looks like they're kind of the threat of moving them to DC is getting closer and closer. I think so. It seems like with Serena being led around by Olivia through this uh, home, which I thought was interesting, they referred to it as an unrestored home, which in a way made you think that it was like a, um, you know, going to be like an antique home that needed to be like updated. But it was haunting when you walked in and it was like all the family's shoes were lined up there. Obviously there was like smashed glass on the floor and, and everything. It was scary. It, it gave me a very Walking Dead vibe, you know, where where you kind of would go through homes when people obviously just vacated it. Yeah. Like, a, like a, a regular life was happening there and then now there was just no people but the home still looked lived in. It's a little bit like the house where June gave birth, um, but that house. Mm, th- this was worse shape Right. Because it was, this was obviously like they'd been caught just in the middle of living when they, whatever happened to them, happened to them. What do you assume happened? Now you read the book. Did, did they ever go into any amount of description of like, you know, were people like plucked out of their homes, like in this case in DC, or would these people have run away or what, what would this have been? If they would have mentioned it, it would have been in such passing that it did not stand out. You know what I mean? It would have just been called some some terminology that Atwood would have made up. But I, I don't remember her saying anything about it because the Handmaid's Tale book picks up at the same time as the show, basically, that June is already in the red center and going to be deployed. Basically. And, and within the book, we like I know we've used up or I believe we've used up all the material from the book yes. in the in the seasons we've already had. So there was never any any moments in D.C. in the book. Nope. No, no mention of it or really specific places. Except just the like Congress that. part, blowing up Congress. Yeah. They're, again, the book is just like the show. It leaves a lot of the world building up to the imagination of the person engaging with it. So, which I appreciate. I mean, it seemed to me like the way that Atwood wrote it, it was more like a, it was like a snippet in time, which I actually appreciate books like that. I, I enjoy short stories. I enjoy when you, when you leap into someone's life, right when something pivotal is going to happen and you kind of explore that journey with them and then you leave them. I don't need to go like birth to death with a character in order to have a fulfilling storyline. Do you find it like that? Like, do you have to know all the backstory of your main character or can you just be like, this is where they are at this point in life and like something's about to happen and that's where the story lies? There are stories that I like that are like that. Game of Thrones feels kind of like that in a way. Like it's so detailed, you know, there's people that officially know everything that there is to know about about Westeros or whatever. But when you talk to Handmaid's Tale um, fans, nobody knows shit, you know, They're, they know what they know what they've been shown. But there's not like a depth of, of knowledge or anybody that claims to know a lot more is making it all up because it's because what we see is what we get. You know what I mean? Well, and I guess I'm asking you more as like a as a reader and or as an audience of of stories. Do you prefer when they give you the full gauge, like birth to death of your character, or is it okay to just jump in where their story got bananas and where like sort of that's the story the author wants to tell, the story of this chapter of their life, and and you don't necessarily get all the beginning and all the end. Are you okay with that, or or do you prefer? stories that give you all the backstory on both sides. I'm going to say that I prefer thicker backstories. Like you don't need to start there, but if you say a few sentences along the way that like fills in some of those blanks, like I grew up in Florida, whatever, whatever. Obi-Wan Kenobi says I once fought in the Clone Wars and bam, that's like spinning your, 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 your brain cogs, like thinking, well, what are Clone Wars? And and how, how, what do you mean you were a general and all that kind of stuff? It's like, that's the kind of stuff that I that I really do like. I appreciate that. So for me, I feel I feel like there's a lot of this book that very much relied on the idea of just jumping in at at one point in in the in the timeline of events. I don't know if everybody 
can handle that. I love short stories. I love it when you jump in like the lottery, you know, you just jump in, you're right there. It's the day of the lottery, you know, you're, you're doing it, you're, you're choosing, you know, it's happening and then it happens and then that's it. And you don't go back to those characters. You don't see them again, whatever. I, I have a lot of love for those. I think because my own imagination is pretty active and so I can fill in or, or actually enjoy filling in a lot of the backstory. When it comes to TV, I do feel differently. I do feel like certain relationships have to feel earned to me as opposed to just jumping in and being told these two love each other or these two hate each other. I got to know why. I got to know more. I don't know if that's a difference between books and TV. They're the same age and they're in town together. Right. Yeah, like, I don't know. Like, when it comes to TV, I, I really feel like I hold the writers more accountable than I do. Maybe because, I don't know, there's not such a thing as really uh, necessarily as like a short story show that we watch. These in the days, same way. movies are basically like short stories compared to TV. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Although, God, they're still held accountable. You got to have flashbacks and all that kind of stuff. But you're right. You're No, you're right. I mean, like, we don't expect to go to the grave with John Wick on the first episode. You know, like, no, I mean. <laughs> You're gonna you're gonna know his story that what is important about it right then in that particular two hour move, but you're not gonna know all the adventures he ever had his whole life. So you're right. So maybe so TV's unique, right? Now that we we really hold them more accountable for wanting to have like this massive amount of understanding of every character. Do you think there is a show out there that we take as like a short story? Like, are there ones that ever leave it alone at that, like, just a couple of episodes? Twilight Zone. Besides the Twilight Zone or anthology shows, that's kind of like cheating. Yeah, I kind of think anthology shows are kind of cheating. I'm talking about, like, it seems like in this day and age, even when they have, like, a one season, like, Dead to Me, to me, could just leave it at that. Leave it at 10 episodes. Walk away. Be done. You told one slice a life story part. You got enough of the backstory on either side and then and walk away. But I saw they're doing season two. So I'm like, does anybody ever leave it alone anymore where you can just have a good story? Netflix and- is pretty guilty of that. The the If you were to chart how good Bloodlines was. Oh my God. Perfect example. Like the first season is like a 10 and then the second season is kind of like a six and then the third season is like a two. Oh God. The third season felt like, why? Why? But they did the same thing with 13 Reasons Why. Yeah, good call. That's another really good example of like you have a one particular moment in time and what these children were going through, you know, it's like, bam, capsulated, done. Mm-hmm. What do you think it's just, is it just money driven? I mean, does things like Toy Story 4 just make your eyebrow go like four? Yep, <laughs> it is. Like, really? The jury's still out for me on Big Little Lies season two, since that's still in process. I mean, it's got the potential to, to be- I'm enjoying it so far. To be good. But still, the true detective seasons, kind of like you're talking about, like season one, people really liked. Season two, they change all the characters. People really don't like it. Season three, they're back to liking it. I guess, would you consider, I was going to say maybe American Horror Story is a little bit, bam, you get one story, one set of episodes that's going to cover one storyline. We're not going to go, we're not going back to the beginning. We're not going to the end. Like you just get this one chunk. That's right. And that's kind of all you get. Right. I, I, again, like I'm kind of asking our listeners, like for you guys, and I do feel like the medium matters. Like if it's a movie, obviously all of us can handle it. We are kind of accustomed now to movies being like one chapter of a larger story. We actually expect that. Can people handle it when it's not, when there's not a part two, when there's not a prequel, when there's not a, you know, all the crap that's supposed to give you all these detailed things, the fan fiction or whatever. Can we ever just have a story anymore? That's like, no, you, you just get this. This is all you get. We're not going to give you like any of the other characters info. Is that okay? Can we, can any of us handle that? Can we enjoy that for what it is? But let's get into a person's story we don't know nothing about. And that who's, who's the previous owners of this house that Serena's peeping on? I heard they're Baptists. Yeah. That's the only little nugget we got. Although we did see their family photo. Ooch. You know, if I bet if we looked real hard at that family photo and I encourage everyone to go back and look at this episode again, I didn't look at the children's faces very hard. I bet if you peep real hard at those kids' faces... There's some shot we may have seen them in Gilead. Boy, that'd be pretty tough. I would have a hard time recognizing them, but... It'd be five years later for most of them, or more, more than that. So yeah, that would be pretty rough. But I just wondered, especially because they bothered putting the baby's name, Phoebe, up on the wall. I wondered if later on we see a baby Phoebe. 
or not a baby, obviously this kid would be like 10. But if there was like a 10 year old named Phoebe that looks somewhat like the kid in the picture or something, I just wondered if it would conjure up anything wiggy. Paul's giving me this heavy eyelid, like Caroline, you're talking about bullshit face right now. What do you think is going through Serena's mind in this house? Is she digging it or is she like, this is creepy shit, dude? I kind of think that she's got different percentages going on. I think some part of her is looking at it like the bones of the house. Like, well, you know, this has, like she said, this has great light. I like sort of like the layout, like those types of things, right? I think there is that other part of her that the way that the home has been left so untouched, it's not that it needs to be renovated. It's that, I mean, the previous owner's underwear is in the drawer. Like, I mean, there's like, that's boogity on any level, right? Like anyone's going to be creeped out by that. But then the way that she lingered around the baby crib, I felt all kinds of mixed feelings about that. Like there was a baby that lived in this house. There was a family that lived in this house. But then also I want a baby and I want a baby crib. And can they just leave this crib right here? This seems like a good spot for Nicole to live in. You know, like, I don't know. I think, I think she's just remained this twisted character for me right now. I believe she's also mixed. One of the things that's making her come around to Fred is that he is proving to be super capable in what he is doing right now. It's one thing to see your husband kind of get basically really screwed up in, in his in his last kind of few months where he's messing around with the handmaid and things get out of control. Everything he touches turns to shit a good long while, right? And then all of a sudden he's making these videos and everything's kind of falling into place. And the man in charge says, I like the cut of your jib. And I think that those things are like propping up Fred in her mind. And- hey, you know what this reminds me of just when you were just saying that? I don't mean to interrupt you. It reminded me of uh, The Firm when Tom Cruise and his wife like move into the really nice house first. Yeah. And then, spoiler, I'm sorry, The Firm's really old. So if you guys haven't seen it, I apologize. Please fast forward me like two or three minutes, okay? This is your warning. The whole idea of like, at first, there's like some sense of making it. Like, we're making it, right? We're doing it. Our, uh-huh. our, we're finally being successful. But then it's like, there's always that little like, that edginess of like, I think something else is going on here. I feel uncomfortable about this. And I think Serena like retains that from the get-go here where she like already knows that Fred is capable of being this really weak fuck up, you know, and already has this like ickiness. And like they're coming in on this house where it's like you're going to have to you have to actually see the carnage of the people before you, you know, in a way that that's so much more dramatic, obviously. But it really has that like the house is going to be bugged kind of feeling, you know, that kind of like your life isn't your own you're going to be a part of this larger DC group, which they meet at these at these dinner that they're going to go to. And there's just this that even reminded me of the wife in the firm going to like other lawyer events, you know, and that's sort of like, oh, like everybody knows that your soul is owned by the firm. Bendini, Lambert and Locke. Nice, Paul. Nice I wa- recollection. I wonder if it's an intentional thread that they're putting into these episodes where they are peeling back the facade of Gilead and exposing like it's it's like a Disney world when you look behind the mountain and you just see like the beams and shit holding up the mountain mm-hmm. and how it's like well that's not a mountain that's just beams holding up a mountain well a couple well, it's of beams holding up like sprayed on gunite right on like a chicken wire frame exactly a couple week couple weeks ago we got to see Lydia beat the shit out of Janine in front of everybody kind of pulling back the the mountain a little bit and so showing in front of everybody what goes on to keep the handmaids so subservient beatings yeah they don't want to know that so this is another thing where we've got in your face basically a corpse of a house yeah and a corpse of a family right a corpse of a family and that is in her face Mm-hmm. To try to reconcile if this Gilead life that she's fighting so hard to get baby Nichol <laughs> back from Canada to to have to live through. It is interesting to me that Olivia has like no issue stepping over like baby shoes and other families, you know, belongings and stuff. Like she's like beep 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 and like is just so casual about the whole thing. It, it, it really gives you the heebie-jeebies and allows you to know where Olivia's mind is. You know, like she sees this all the time. She She's seen how the sausage is made and she's fine with it. Right. She's good with it. For all Serena, we know, she's like head realtor. <laughs> well, yeah. And I, you know, I always, again, in the sort of like eyeballing kind of stuff about this kind of stuff, does it make sense that the wives 
would make decisions having to do with houses and or walking her around. Like, I don't know. In this whole world of like women are less than and women are are are, you know, just subjugated classes, it just it makes me feel like why would Olivia show her around? I mean, it seems like there would be a male person in charge of them. Well, they're not buying the house. No, I wasn't talking about that. I'm talking about the freedom that these women would have in such a strict society. Oh, their wives doesn't though. actually fly with me. Wives get to Kind of, I think there are places they don't get to go, but yeah, they, I mean, they go on walks, they go on plentiful walks. Oh my God. They can walk. (laughs) Right. Walk their little women's feet right off. Wow. I just, I didn't think that, I don't know. And I mean, obviously the Winslows are high up. So Olivia having, you know, keys to another home and all that kind of stuff. Okay, fine. I guess. Sure. Okay. Let's talk about the Winslows for a second. We have George and Fred having that little meeting. Now I was dismayed to hear that Canada is like willing to talk. I was like, ugh. But I mean, I saw this coming. Freaking saw this Canada. Coming. Why are you surprised at this concept that keeping the baby in Canada actually provides them a whole lot of leverage? The leverage that I envision that taking the, the form of to me is the longer that Canada is perceived as hanging on to this baby by the world community, the worse it gets for them. You know, there might be other countries that are like, well, just get back the baby already. You know, like that sort of attitude and wherever it is that diplomats meet in this post-America um, version of the world. I don't know if the United Nations is still a thing or not. But I didn't see it coming that Winslow would would use the baby like that. I thought they were all on board for getting the baby back. I don't know that I saw Fred being open to the baby being leveraged. I thought that he actually cared a little bit about getting the baby back for Serena and cared about this in some way. So then when he was totally like, yeah, that makes sense. He's so just like- His ego has has grown further than his love for Serena. Yeah. So let's, and we also had that like uncomfortable moment again, where I felt like, like George was way too much in Fred's personal space, grabbing him by the elbow, pulling him in. I know that that's all very business deal, kind of mafia-esque, but it, it just seems so inappropriate. Like it just seemed like, again, I don't know if this is dominating man or something more. I don't know. Is every interaction going to include touching and being in each other's faces? The only reason I would stand that close to another man like that is if we were at like a party and I needed to hear what he had to say. Yeah, uh, like you leaned forward to like listen in. Right. Yeah, and I mean, no, that, and a little bit what he was saying wasn't for public consumption. He wasn't like, hey, everybody, let's let's use a baby for leverage, you know. Like, but it I wasn't mean, crowded either. Right, right. And they didn't have to talk right there in the hallway necessarily, you know, I mean, like a bunch of stuff. But there's something about George that is giving me the heebs in terms of just like, I just don't quite know what his angle is. I am predicting some sort of dominating scene over Fred sexually. I am seeing that coming. I don't know why I'm seeing that coming. I don't know if I have a deranged brain, but that's what I see happening. Like some sort of, I don't know, like proof of allegiance or something, something bizarre, some fraternity hazing-esque grossness. And I haven't seen further than this, you guys. So I have no idea, but doesn't that fly in these group of like man commander? Like in Team America, when he says, I won't be able to trust you until you suck my cock. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Fred may or may not be keen on sucking big George's cock. But uh, it looks like he's angling for a little action of his own, given the way he handles himself at dinner. We have Serena and Fred head out to this, like, dinner, dancing, drinks, soiree, if you will. What was your read on this entire thing? For me, it was just opulence, luxury, so much. They have so much in D.C. when we know they're, like, rationing elsewhere. And, you know, if you think just over to to the old neighborhood... You know, there wasn't enough stuff on the shelves, really. And then, like, past that, you know, going out to Serena's mom's house, where they're even having less, they could not have more. Remember the, um, was it the second or third Hunger Games where they go to the Capitol and whenever they do, uh, they, they run into the people that, that take a certain kind of medicine that helps them throw up so that they can eat more of the opulent food that's available at the ball. Yeah, that this has that vibe, wouldn't you say? It's got a real throw-up medicine vibe. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, the first thing I noticed being being a gal who cares about fashion. Epicac. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. I didn't know if you were saying cock or epicac there, but okay. Anyway, so the women's dresses, the way that they actually tried to take the wives' dresses and do like different styles with them. Right. There were some backless. Or I know. Sort of backless. Very saucy, right? The chatter amongst the women was not unlike chatter you might hear at any gathering of gals in that they were being very sassy. And this was quite unexpected to me and apparently to Serena because they're actually having this conversation that was like ogling the waiters. What do you think about this? I mean, is it like we've never shown the wives to be like sexual creatures? Yeah. It was like the teeniest bit with Serena, but like that's it. I really overlooked this scene, the way you're keying into it. I just feel like that Serena did like a double take with them. She just had this smile like, I don't know what to say. Because the entire point is to be so subservient to your husbands. To be like so, like he's your master. You're like his his little like property. The idea that you have sexuality, that you have desires beyond him, that you're looking around or that you would even populate a party with men to ogle. I mean, that's kind of outside their culture, P. In such a strict part of their world, you know? Right, where they're wringing women's mouths closed, right? Exactly. So that that caught me off guard. And the dancing. I mean, Fred comes in like he's never seen her before, which was super weird because they had had drinks prior and had walked down the hall together. But then he looks at her like, what? Is that Serena? She came to the dance? And it was like, wait, you brought her to the dance, douche. And you were like just in the hallway with her. That was super odd, right? Let's, let's, let's put a little pin in it for a second and jump back to the drink scenes, okay? Having drinks, the baby leverage crap actually gets brought up by Serena. That's because she's smarter than him. So much smarter. And she sees the value in what George is talking about without even knowing that George is talking about it. But... She's smart. She gets how things work. Were you surprised at all that Fred went back to his... I'm the commander and I'll let you know what you're supposed to know. Kind well, of. see, I thought it was actually more interesting than that. And actually, I was kind of thinking like, I should talk like Fred sometimes. Like if I don't want to talk about something, I should just say preemptively. Like if I could see the conversations heading down a road where where someone's going to ask me something, I should just say, and please don't ask me about XYZ because that's not something I can possibly comment on at this time. It's freaking smart to be proactive like that as opposed to wait until the obvious question is thrust upon you and then you have to like tap dance. I'm totally going to use this like in the future and be like, and I know you're going to ask me when those timesheets are going to be done, but please don't make me comment on that at this time. I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. Don't even. I kind of like that. It's like, it's, it, it is a controlling tactic in a conversation that I've not used before. I'll try it at work sometimes. Yeah. See how. Don't try it on me. I'm going to see right through. I'm be like, fuck you. And you're don't, don't ask me for a comment. I'm asking. I wouldn't dream. <laughs> okay. So speaking of something else you wouldn't dream to do. Hmm. Dancing. That's for sure. Boy, this scene felt surreal. I wonder if it was surreal. The way that they had every, I mean, every extra on that set looking at them as they danced, even though, you know, they started out pretty... Oh, just box-stepping it? ...mundane dancing, but they still had quite a bit of eyes on them. But then it's because then they went to that more passionate dance. You think it's because everybody knows their business and that they're not, mm. not together? Even and they though, were like, check out, check out this shit! Right. Fred and SJ are finally finally making amends. Like summer camp? No, it's totally reminding me of Greece when they start like punching in the arm like, check it out, Riz and Kaniki have totally made up. It's like that. <laughs> they're like punching each other in the arm like, yeah. all right. Yeah. Now a, the gang's back together. He's a total Kaniki. Oh, yeah. No, he's no Kaniki. Kaniki, you're a monster. <laughs> John Oliver. <laughs> yes. Oh, Kaniki had issues. Okay. Well, anyway, so I, I think maybe it was supposed to feel surreal. I don't know how much of it like is like was actually happening. Maybe just a couple of eyes were on them really, but it just felt like we were supposed to be swept up in the moment with them, right? Somehow they were rekindling in some way. They were finding some old connections there. Yeah. And that's where the surrealness, like you mentioned, was it all the eyes or did it just feel like all the eyes? I kind of am going with the, it felt like everyone was watching them, but maybe that wasn't what was really happening. Especially when it was like, I mean, it had very Vaseline on the lens kind of feel to it. This may be a completely baseless comment because, I mean, I could just look it up right Please, now. Please, don't, don't ask me questions 
about a baseless comment. I can't handle that right now. But so much of the look of this season's cinematography, the way that the the director of photography um, set up the camera to use lighting and practical lighting and and especially like the lighting that spills in from outside and all that to create lens flares and all that. I just don't remember it being so prevalent in previous seasons. Well, they were typically in the Waterford house, which was so dark, you know? I mean, I wouldn't say that like the majority of season one, really even season two was played out in their home where everything was very dark. And then even when they were moving around, like going to Nick's apartment or anything like that, everything was being in like the the, the dead of night, you know? So yeah. this is like the first season that I would say a lot of things are happening sort of, I want to say more out in the open and definitely more this airiness, this lightness. Well, I'm looking and they do reuse the same directors of photography over and over again. Like for instance, I'm looking at a guy named Colin Watkinson who shot some of second season, some first season, and some of third season, including Knight and Mary and Martha. So maybe he's part of it. Maybe he's uh, part of establishing this new look the with the lens flare filled look. You know what I'm talking about, right? There's sort of I know a, exactly what you're talking about. It's it's that like yes, it's super surreal. It's that sort of like the sunshine in my eyes sort kind of, of a feel. yellowy, hazy yeah. hue I know what you're in a lot of shots that wasn't there in previous episodes. So yeah, I bet that's deliberate and it's um it mostly is revolving around Serena though. I think it's always wrapped up in her. The meaning of color is Okay. Freshness or enlightenment or loyalty. Hmm. But it also represents cowardice and deceit. All that works. All Serena that Joy works. is all those words. All of those words. So I don't know. I think that our, our last week's prediction about the Waterfords heading to Washington, D.C., I think we at least see some steps going in that direction. And if they don't decide to do this, I feel like it's going to be because of these moments that we are now seeing right this moment. The heebie-jeebies about a house that still has like a the air of death of another family in it. The cackling of the wives about, you know, staring at other men's butts and stuff. The All these moments. I was the baby being used for leverage. Like there's a lot of little tiny drops that are being placed here that should give Serena Joy a moment pause about like, is this what you want to be doing here? Because this doesn't really fall under, you know, what you thought it would be like. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of struggle there. It's a lot of ignoring of things in order to be okay with what's going to happen. Moving forward, let's head back to the old hood and we're going to talk about June. And man, this felt like a season one episode to me. We were back to the grind of The Handmaid's Life. So we had that like quintessential, like going with your partner to the grocery store and she's dealing with of Matthew again and blah, dealing with her. But I really appreciated that the other handmaids, again, they, they're they like really working together more and they like work to get of Matthew away from June so that she can go chit chat with Hannah's Martha. That'd be Agnes's Martha, right? Yes, yes. Did you notice like how many like dairy freezers they had to open up in order to have their conversation it was like six they're like moving down the dairy freezer like like uh lockers I think they were all, like in... empty that was the weird thing at least from our point of view like they were like mostly empty i'm not sure yeah that that was yeah it was convoluted but it just reminded me of um you can't do that on television with the lockers a little bit you know but the creepiest part of the grocery store to me was that they made mention of that two veils came into town that week and that was with those clasped faces which mm. means that two handmaids either moved in that have rings or two people that already live there got rings in their mouths that's like uh mm, it's very looming for june paul very looming it's like when you live in a certain part of the world and you see the first kind of a of a bird that signals the change of the season, right? Okay, that, robin redbreast, if you will. Right, spring is here or winter's here. One of those, Cardinals. right? Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, it creeps me out because it means that this is. I, you guys, I do not see June not having this happen. I, I really don't. She's so outspoken and she is so like willing to do things 
that are so against the rules. I just like, I do not see her avoiding this and it's going to be horrible. How are we going to have a main character with rings in her mouth? Or at least we're going to get really close. We might get all the way to being strapped down, you know, before something happens, before maybe Aunt Lydia wigs out and saves her and I just see it coming. She did get some information from that Martha though about where Hannah is located, the guardian that she can talk to, Parker. Did you think that she was going to try to enlist Mrs. Lawrence or did you think another Martha or did you think another handmaid to try to go on this walk to the school? I believe uh, Mrs. Lawrence was the last resort. Because if you recall, she tried enlisting camouflage Martha and and the other Martha was like, nope, not me. And it was funny because she's like, I need to see my daughter. She's like, yeah, I really don't feel like going out today or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, she was like, she was like, my leg's gonna hurt. I don't feel like walking. I mean, it is weird in terms of like, why would they have the ability the freedom to go for a walk to the school like it's almost like you had to have mrs lawrence it doesn't make any sense that a martha would be able to walk with artists you know i mean that doesn't make any sense so even if the martha was agreeable i don't know why they would have done that however they end up with this walk with mrs lawrence and i thought this was really interesting we got a lot of insight on mrs lawrence first of all the chick is filterless the are you mean the exchange with the baby oh i mean the exchange with mrs Beltman. yeah yeah, yeah. That's uncomfortable when <laughs> when you start talking about, I'm glad you're not dead to the baby. So uncomfortable. And I honestly, I thought, okay, how long is this going to actually last? You know, like, enough, is this going to have to- Long enough to say it twice. Well, or like, are they going to have to, like, is she going to have the sense to have to like stop this walk? You know, like how long is this going to last? But no, June doesn't. She just decides she's going to persevere, which, okay, that gives us an opportunity to find out a little bit more about the Lawrences. Turns out they don't have any kids, but Mrs. Lawrence wanted to try, but she's on bipolar medication. And what it sounded like to me is that they had tried a lot of different dosing with her. And my guess is that in order to have kids or even try, you probably would have to come off your medication. Mr. Lawrence was not willing to even consider that, which I I get that. That makes sense. And I'm guessing in Gilead, without proper medical care, that's why we're dealing with so much of what she's going through. Where she just needs to stay kind of hidden away, you mean? Yeah, because I don't, I I think, I mean, she's alluding to the idea that she needed like constant adjustments in her medications, depending on what was going on with her. And so if that's the the case, I mean, she's not getting any of that type of medical care. So certainly, I mean, that's got a way on Lawrence, you know, like think about it like this. We were kind of coming at it from what if she was already having dementia or some sort of mental illness, and now he's using Gilead as like some sort of Petri dish to figure it out, right? right? What if it's this? What if her bipolar disorder was being handled successfully. And now that there's Gilead and there's not this uh, medical community to help her, she's been deteriorating. And so now he's working off of a place of guilt, not of a place of trying to save her, but more of a place of like, he knows she's deteriorating and he knows it's the way that this culture has been set up. That's part of the reason or the reason. Hmm. He's done more work to keep things the way they are than, than his one action of releasing Emily, though. I do feel like regardless of what Mrs. Lawrence's actual health status is, June was bold or stupid to be so frank about what this walk was about. I don't know that telling someone who is is somewhat disoriented at times, something that is a big secret to you, like I want to go see my daughter, blah, blah, blah. I It, it feels like in my heart, like you, you never really had to admit that to her, you know? And in fact, it's like, it's 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 handing over powerful information to somebody who doesn't, she she has no, not even not, not, not a reason to keep a secret for you, but she doesn't even know it's a secret, you know? She, she's not going to handle that with any care. June seems to be blinded by the short-term gain of maybe being able to see her daughter. But by the time they get to the place, I mean, it looks a lot more like a minimum security prison, you know, like super tall walls, like not even like fence, but walls, uh, like very tall. Which, let me ask you this. Do you think that Hannah's Martha knew what the school looked like? Yeah. So then telling June to go there because they play outside at a certain time, knowing that the walls are feet thick, not see-through, what What was this? Um, she could never have seen Hannah. So dumb. I mean, given the way that things wind up for that Martha, and then well, but I'm for asking this you, to be all that she was ever going to get out of the But wait, the whole but, thing, but back up a little bit. What you, a you waste. Said, you said so dumb, but... But I'm confused. I mean, if that Martha knew very well, she could never 
see Hannah? Why did she send her there? What was the point? Was it that she was going to see if she saw Guardian Parker, Parker would have let her in? How is she going to go in unnoticed as a handmaid? Like what was supposed to happen? I mean, I'm even missing what was supposed to transpire. That's true. A handmaid would have zero reason to go to an elementary school. Like it would, it would be suspicious 100% of the time. I guess if she was dressed as a Martha, maybe... But Martha's wasn't. were allowed to pick up kids from school. I know, but but yeah, Hannah's Martha sense. didn't know how she was going to go and show up there. But it just, I don't know. I'm, I'm just really shaking my head because it seems like one of those things that's like, as soon as Parker wasn't there, they should have left. Additionally, what was the point of going there if the, if the Martha knew very well that there was no way that June was ever going to be able to actually see. I, when she said you could see them playing, I envisioned like a chain link fence, wrought iron fence, something where you could see through yeah it never occurred to me that it would be like a stucco kind of wall that like or cement wall or something that you can't you can't see the children puzzling to say the least yeah it only made me wonder if she didn't mind if june got caught she didn't mind like that was fine let her get in trouble yeah i thought about that then inevitably she'd be questioned and then I know it all. It's, it, none of it really makes sense. This was a really flimsy, strange plan. It was all odd. And what she actually got out of it, the whole like just putting her hands on the wall and just feeling the yeah. children's voices. I mean, I don't know, you guys. It it all it makes me think back to I mean, you're her conversation mother. with Serena saying, going to go see the baby is not going to help. Like it's like she had the she has the understanding that going and having these little snippets with a child is not going to make you feel better. So unless she had an actual plan to execute of actually getting Hannah out right then, like how to get away car, had a had a change of clothes, had a whole plan, I don't know why she would endure even the thought of just going for a glimpse when she was very easy to understand with Serena. Like getting a glimpse of your baby is only gonna make you more upset, Serena. So then what the heck? Blinded by motherhood. But, I mean, as, as but a, also like no. Doesn't I mean, I mean, as a father that feels like if I if I saw the wall surrounding the entire place, which you would see by the way from like half a mile away, I'd Paul. be like, like you wouldn't have to walk all the way up to the gates to be like, there's a wall. And then we find out that Parker's not on duty. You would just leave. You, you would, would say another freaking day. I got to come back when Parker's here another freaking day because I actually have no plan. But now I know where the school is. Now I know how long it took to walk here. Now I know. I mean, you know, you you come got on. some some usable intel. Now I know. Serena gives me piece of shit tidbits on on my kid. Yeah, Serena told me about this this the idea of this is remember the if if I had if there was a certain kid in this area then yeah, they why do you think this is piece of, I don't understand why you don't think this is the school I think it's the school but I think this is representative of schools and June wouldn't have known that Serena I think might have. These secured locations. Oh, these that you, you couldn't see through. Right. You never would have been able right. to see through. Hmm. Right. So you think it was like false information. A tease. Like, yeah, mm. she's in there. I mean, it's, it's a completely black box, but yeah, sure, she's in there. Wow. Super weird. So the, that whole thing, I mean, it ruined a lot of things because now Mrs. Lawrence tries to be helpful, but it completely falls apart. She's in shambles. June has to get her home and has to deliver her back to Commander Lawrence, who is beyond pissed. What do you think about her interaction with Joseph when they get home? For a second, I thought I thought he might lose it. I totally thought the way that she, I thought, she, see, we both thought she was kneeling at the top of the stairs. She's sitting on it. She was sitting. Yeah. That only matters a little bit, but if you were kneeling, you could fall forward. And for some reason, I just had this imagery of him kicking her in the back and her like falling down the stairs and getting hurt. That's all I thought in my head. Not, not even pushing her with his hands, but kicking her like, like Sparta. Stay away from, yeah, very Sparta-ish. Like stay away from my wife. Like I've already told you to stay away from my wife. Told you not to talk about my wife. And you took her outside the house. In fact, we had the conversation about what happens to a handmaid who opens the front door. And you freaking took my wife out there who you know is sick and confused. His reaction seemed more like, like we've been saying all along, like the disappointed teacher. Oh, but dude, no, I think calculating. I think there's going to be punishment. We just haven't seen it yet. Mm. I do not think he walked away like, I'm disappointed in you the end. I think he's like, I'm going to go think about what's going to happen to you now. It's If you think about it, Paul, his wife was the one thing he asked you to leave him alone. It was the one little vulnerable spot. It's the one button. He was like, don't push that button. And she walked right up there and took the button, snatched it and took it outside and got it all wigged out. She's like fucking baby Groot. Yeah. 
She is. <laughs> she just didn't do it anyway. So, I mean, do I think she deserves what's going to happen? No, I'm scared. I don't want what's going to happen to her. Do I think it's going to be terrible? Yeah, I freaking do. I don't see how Lawrence doesn't retaliate. What if it's just more of that, I'm the big man humiliating you in front of the other big men business like he did in the parlor that, that one time. But this is his wife. This just feels different. I don't know. It's my own prediction, but it feels bad. It feels like you did the one thing he asked you not to do in his household. Got one job. Talk about another job, however. Okay. Well, wait, wait. Before I go on. She also did one thing, too. She yelled at him about his wife. You should have seen her. She came alive. Like, totally. Like, didn't even just let it lie. When he walked away in silence... She had to have the last word. Shown. I mean, is there no sense of self-preservation anymore? Here's the answer. No, she doesn't have any anymore. <laughs> and here's why. Because, now let's start talking back at what we were talking about at the very beginning, which was hangings, participations, stonings. Let's get into that. Why are we starting to lose our sense of self-preservation? We're starting to see more of that medieval stuff that was present in season one, where these handmaids have to somehow be a part of the execution portion of their judicial system. It, and I think it has to do with people that have made, uh, have committed crimes against women and children. And that's, that is who the handmaids get to enforce the law against. I don't think, I don't think they're getting shoplifters and shit like that. Okay. So if you remember correctly, and this was more from the book, we weren't getting this from the show. Right. It was that rapists, people who hurt children. These were the people that the handmaids were a part of executing. That's right. And in the book, wasn't it more stonings? It was stonings, yeah. So in some way, the whole concept of like clearing out the rotten fruit that of Matthew says, you kind of get it, right? That somehow, especially if it was of, if it was against children, the handmaids do everything. Their entire life is based on bringing children to the world. If you did something to hurt a child, these women would be enraged, right? So it could be coming from an actual visceral true place of being so angry or, or, or a rape of a woman to be able to act that out and be so angry that this person did this, you could see where that could come from. Yeah. In the book and in the first movie, that is, that is probably when the women actually kind of come unhinged. Right. And I mean, that's something that Lawrence actually kind of mentions, you know, that you have to let people blow off steam and that that was something that we had talked about. And I don't remember if it was book related or if it was show related, but it was this concept that when you are, you are so clamped down upon and you live such a rigid lifestyle, every once in a while, you have to give this opportunity to kind of go berserk so that you can kind of get all your energy out, you know, just sort of feel like you could, like you said, come unhinged and just kind of get it all out of your system. Like the Amish and the year they send. Yeah, Rum Springer, right? But yeah, well, that sounds right. I mean, it's made up of sounding word that sounds right. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, because if you're going to live a very strict lifestyle, there has to be some sense of relief right? At some point in time. It's why Jezebels exist. That's what they tell themselves. Yes. So they show them actually doing these hangings and it, and it begins our show and it ends our show this episode. The whole concept of like pulling the rope and stuff. Now, again, since now we've given you some context, if you didn't know from the book or if you, or if you didn't remember from the first seasons, these were supposed to be crimes against women and children. So the concept of the handmaids participating seemed really gruesome to see that. But if you remembered the sort of way that the society was set up. I'm not saying it's great to see, but it's certainly more understandable why they were a part of it. Although they don't even know. Like in the first one, they just kind of got a rumor. One of the people that they had hanged had mistreated a child in some way. I don't remember the exact details, but it wasn't like they'd killed a child. It was just some sort of... Right. And they didn't stand up there and say, this person's a rapist and this person hurt a child. And they didn't like go down the line. So we don't really know what anybody did. I mean, I think that that's part of it too, though. It's not like this is a true justice system. I mean, it could just be a rumor that someone hurt a kid or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Very SS, secret police. Yeah. Like you don't need to know why you're doing this anyway. I feel like the other reason why handmaids are a part of it like that, it makes them part of the system. In a way that like guilt and SS makes me think of this. It's like if you got your hands dirty too, I feel like you're a lot less 
apt to turn other people in because you're sort of implicating yourself. If you're forced upon doing an execution, though, though, like we saw with the Swiss interrogation, you can try to defend yourself in some way, but at the end of the day, they can still be like, so you killed someone. And it's like, oh, I am a bad person, right? And so now you're, you're sort of wrapped up in it. It's a psychological device that they use, right? In order to make you feel like you're in this too. Same sort of thing. Remember in Better Call Saul, do you remember, remember what's the old guy's name? Ermin Trout. Okay, remember Mike. Remember he had this this weird relationship with his daughter-in-law. And they explain that it's because Mike was a dirty cop and that her husband was a cop also who had died in the line of duty, right? And it all got went back to that Mike was a dirty cop and his son and his son found out about all the dirty copness, and he wouldn't take the money. Like you're saying, they, that he wouldn't make himself complicit, so they killed him, if I remember that correctly. It's the same kind of concept. They use it in, in other applications, but it's if you're party to this thing, then if you put a, you are... You're in it. Right. If you, if you have a stake in it, now all of a sudden you are as interested in protecting the system as anybody else. Exactly right. And so, and I mean, if, honestly, if you guys watch Good Girls, same. Like, it's the same kind of thing where that's what Rio does a lot, where he tries to make Brie have more stake in the game so that she is not apt to, t- to turn because she's done her own crimes. You know, there's, there's, it becomes like, um, the list becomes more even. And it's even though as the, as the handmaid, you can obviously say I was forced to do this. People who are not in there. It's like how the wife was wailing and saying, like, like, you don't understand the circumstances of why she would run someone over. If you're on the outside, it's like, hmm, I just, you know, at what point would I ever be pushed to stab someone? Because Lydia's you up there saying it. everybody has to hold the rope. Probably doesn't. It certainly doesn't take that many people to pull those, pull that, I'm sure. I'm sure there's other ways they could have made that mechanism where a couple people could have done it. But so long as you're holding the rope, you're equally responsible for those people's deaths. That's what they tells them yes so now we get to that last the bookend hanging right it's of course hannah's martha that's up there and it's awful you know she sees her they do a lot of camera work about getting right up in the woman's face she's she's crying she's got like you know her nose is running she's she's i mean they they did a great job. That actress did a great job of portraying the fear that you would honestly feel in that moment. I thought June's face, however, was interesting. And now that we've talked it through about what she found at the school, I, maybe I understand it better. June's face was not terribly remorseful. No, it was very stony. Having just talked about it together, June went all the way out there. And or nothing. The walls were not, you couldn't see through them. So the Martha's information, I guess is what I'm trying to say, is like she, it all got found out and it all got everyone in trouble. But like at the end of the day, the information was bad. So now killing her, like, I don't know, there was something about her, like she just like set her jaw. Like, and and I mean, of course, worse than that, the McKenzie's are now not in the same neighborhood anymore. We don't know how far away they went. My guess is DC, but because that's where I think we're all heading. But really think about that. She, her jaw was set in such a way that she was, she was angry. Like she picked up that rope with like, Well, lady, you did this to yourself. You give me shit information. And because we were talking, you got found out and blah, blah, blah. And now you're being hung and I have to be a part of it. Let's all do our part. Like you were dancing the part just as much as I was. And she seemed so resigned by it. And I didn't get it the first time until we talked it through about the fact that the school is so fruitless. And then it's like, that's why she is acting like that when it goes to hang the Martha, she's just so angry at how dumb this entire adventure to go to the school really was. When did it come out that the Mackenzies were not to be found? Was it just right after? when the no? Right when that Martha was walking up there, they said, "Hey, did you hear the the Mackenzies are gone?" And then when the woman starts walking across the the stage there, that's when like all eyes went up, and 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 that's when like she realized like that's the that's the Martha. You know, like mm. that was a realization that was like, oh, there, and there she is. So there could be lots of thoughts in there. Like if the Mackenzies are gone, then Hannah slash Agnes is gone. If they're gone and the Martha's here, then then the Martha not only screwed me, but may have screwed the whole thing or, or something. Definitely. I mean, definitely. Yeah. Like she did something more. Like maybe she tipped off the Mackenzies and told the Mackenzies to go. And then, you know, she, the fact that she was even speaking with June, like, I, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff here, but obviously really, really 
no matter what exactly happened, the entire thing was for nothing. And June's like, you wasted my time and you just made me get like two more X's on my like bad list of like, now I'm probably going to get in so much more trouble. She was fine with killing her. At first I thought it was more like at this fucking place kind of, kind of thing, you know, like you just couldn't get out of it. Me too. Or I couldn't, I couldn't put my finger on it. Of like, why does she look so like you're getting what's coming to you? You know, just that it's like that. It's that, um, mobster like set your jaw like mm-hmm. you, it's not you're not you're not even like showing your anger so much as it's just like well it is what it is now yeah, let's isn't get it this thing done yeah like it I, you this is what's gonna have to happen now you know this is the system you knew the rules and this is how it's gonna all play out you know right so speaking of who knew the rules and how things are gonna play out of matthew we're gonna end with you Mm. This woman has just been a thorn in June's side from day one with all of her little sass mouth. It's ironic to me that the people who could do the most damage, the cattle prods, the, you know, being locked in your room and everything is so small compared to the, the actual pain of these tiny comments that of Matthew does. Like those from within your own group of people who are also being held down feel more painful and do more harm and rile June up more than being thrashed her feet, more than being like kept in a cage when she was pregnant, more than all those things. It's this woman's constant need to be like, praise be everybody. That like makes everyone (laughs) like, you are the worst. You're the thing that makes me go over the edge the hardest. And boy, did she go over the edge. Yep. It's her fault. She told. June's response was. I I thought June was going to kill her. I thought June was going to. Toss her over the edge, bust her head in, something. The handmaids created this cool little wall, sort of like- did it so smooth. Sort of like recess where they're like, fight, fight, fight. But smoother than that because they turned their backs into the situation and looked out like sentry watch. That's even cooler than just like gathering. Did you think she she would go all the way? I did. I thought that they were, I thought she was going to kill her. And I thought that the rest of the group was going to be like, she jumped. Like, just somehow back June and act like, mm, I can't believe she just felt like that. That was so crazy. The the only thing that would have messed that whole thing up is if they found out that she was pregnant, which I don't know if she'd told yet, but, but that would have been like- I think a, they did because she said that the doctor said that her morning sickness was normal. Okay. So that'd be a much bigger deal. Is. But jumping is jumping and certainly handmaids have been crazy. So I don't know, but I think that they would have covered for her had June decided to just push. She was choking her when she could have just pushed her. You know what I mean? Like she was, she was actually just choking her. I'm sure she just wanted to scare her, but this isn't going to work out. I mean, what's going to happen? And Matthew's going to go, you choked me. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, what the fallout at this point, think of all the different things. Think of the fact that she's implicated in the, in the death of the Martha, Hannah being now gone. The Lawrences are, are it, we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop with Mr. Lawrence. He's not going to let this fly. He's no. going to punish her in some way. And then now she's been choking out another handmaid who's pregnant. I mean, oh my God, Paul, put all these pieces together. What kind of punishment are we looking at in episode eight? Well, for this season, probably nothing since June is bulletproof. Stressful, you guys. Stressful on that front. I mean, I do. I hey. I get no pleasure out of this woman getting punished at all. I certainly don't. But if you give the premise of the show, and you give that this is what's going to have to happen in a society like this, oh my gosh, she has got so many strikes against her. How does she wiggle out of this? I don't know. Do you have any predictions at all? Yeah, they just don't punish her. Well, that's awful. Well, here's here's what I've heard. I have heard rumors that episode eight is going to be amazing because we are finally going to get some backstory on Aunt Lydia. And I am so excited about that. Ann Dowd is by far one of my favorite characters. We loved her from The Leftovers. And we are so excited to get to finally know what in the world would have brought Aunt Lydia to this place in her life. And I am so jazzed. My bet is she ran something like a girl's school or a dorm or something where she was in charge of girls what do you think i don't know it could be something so much less than that i have this background with leftovers with her that just makes me feel like it could be so much more basic i mean she could be like a dental hygienist and like she's just like as long as i help one person's soul like i i feel like she's gonna end up having a very menial job she could be like the person who takes the coins at like the toll booth. I don't think she's going to have been in power at all. I don't think that, I don't think that's the way it works. You know, I don't think that they put people who are actually powerful in powerful positions. Mm. I think that they, 
you know? Yeah, that sounds right. Because these are the people that, that went along. Over, overthrew power because they didn't have any power. Okay. All I'm right. going with something stranger and I'm, weirder I'm like that. I'm going with former Mrs. Garrett. Caroline is going with refrigerator saleswoman. <laughs> <laughs> something I, I agree that she could be in a caretaking facet but something far more like like I said like a dental hygienist or something or, or just somebody who thinks they're doing something helpful every day but but ultimately could be replaced by anybody or anything like doesn't really have any big power bye-bye thanks for listening thank you for listening this has been an original pod clubhouse production Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.